Hi, my name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Two nuns run out of gas, kind of near a gas station. So they rummage through their car trying to find a gas, a gas can to get some gas, but they can't find anything. But they find an old bedpan and uh, they decide that'll work. So they walk down to the gas station with their bedpan. They fill it up with gas and they come back to their car. So the two nuns, all in nun regalia, they're pouring gas from the bedpan into the car. This guy drives by. And he sees what's happening and he shouts out the window, now that's great faith, sisters. (laughs) The Bible only records two instances instances in the Bible where Jesus commends people for great faith. One of them is the Roman centurion who said to Jesus, you don't need to come to my house. You know, I'm, I'm a man in control of others. You just say the word from where you are and, and he'll be healed. And Jesus said that man had some great faith. And the other time when Jesus commends someone for their great faith is in the story that we're going to look at this morning. It's not found in Mark's gospel. It's found in Matthew's account of the story. Um, Matthew records these words by Jesus. Woman, your faith is great. Let it be done to you as you want. And the actual word there for, for great is the word from which we get mega. So basically Jesus says, woman, you have mega faith. Let it be done to you as you're asking. So this morning, what I'd like to do is I'd like to take the story that's before us. And I'd like to talk to you about great faith. What made this woman's faith great? I think it's a bit ironic, maybe you'll agree with me, that Jesus made that statement. And the reason I say that it's ironic is because Jesus would say on several occasions, he would say, all that God requires is a little bit of faith. He said, you know, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, then you can say to this mountain, go into the ocean and it'll go into uh, the ocean. So evidently great faith and little faith aren't necessarily related to amount or size of of the faith or how much faith they have. It must be something else that distinguishes great faith uh, from little faith. So before we look at the text this morning, however, what I'd like to do is I'd like to answer a couple of questions that will serve as sort of like a a bedrock or or a launching pad for the, the issues that we'll talk about. And uh, so I'd like to talk about two questions, and I'd like to answer them for us. Um, The first question that I want to talk about is, what is faith? And I want to define it biblically for us. In chapter 11 of Hebrews, in the first verse, it says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. So therefore, faith is an assurance, it's a confidence, it's a conviction of something that is true and right, even though we can't prove it with our senses. Faith is a certainty, it's it's an assurance that something is true, even though tangibly or maybe empirically, empirically, we cannot prove it. The evidence, the empirical evidence may not be available to us, but we yet have a certainty that this thing that we believe is true. 
Someone once said that faith is believing something that contradicts the evidence. I disagree with that. I don't think that's what faith is at all. It's not about a conviction that something's true when the absolute empirical evidence says otherwise. It's believing something, though you lack empirical evidence for what you believe. At least that's how Jesus or God defines faith, I think, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. But faith is not just an intellectual exercise. It's, it's not just something we just think. It, it is a mind plus action thing. It's a conviction that moves you to act. Again, here's God. Same book, same chapter, a couple of verses later, verse 6. He says, now without faith, it's impossible to please God. Since the one who draws near to him must believe that God exists and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. So without faith, without a conviction that God exists, we can't please God. But that's not all the verse says. It says that it, faith moves us to draw near to God, to seek after God. Faith leads you to seek after God. And in spite what some people may tell you, that faith is a work, faith is not a work. Faith is your response to the work of God. Faith is your response to the, to the initiating work of God. Faith is your autonomously free response to God's work of revealing himself to you. First in creation, then in your conscience, and then in Jesus. God is revealing himself to us. And faith is our response. And faith is an assurance that God has revealed himself. And it's, a, it's an assurance and a conviction that leads us to follow after Jesus or leads us to seek after God. If faith does not lead you to draw near to God, to seek God, then you're, you don't have the kind of faith that pleases the Lord. And this is why it only takes a little bit of faith. If you have the smallest amount of faith, the smallest conviction that God exists and you seek him, you will find him. Now, this morning when I was going over this message, it hit me when I made that statement out loud. It hit me that in the Old Testament, it says, seek me and you will find me. How? When you search for me with all your heart. That doesn't sound like a little bit of faith. That sounds like a lot of, a, a lot of faith, doesn't it? So I, was, I had to step back and say, is this statement true? That if you have the slightest conviction that God is true and you seek him, you will find him. Is that true? Or do you have to seek him with all your heart? I, I think there's enough in scripture to say that if, if we seek after the Lord, he will meet us. He will reveal himself uh, to uh, to us, so I, I don't I don't believe that Jesus or God is trying to tell us in the Old Testament that it's not enough to seek Him with a little bit of faith. I, I think if we seek Him with a little bit of faith, we will find Him. And hopefully, in, in the goal this morning, my goal in this talk, or my goal using this story, is to hopefully inspire and encourage all of us to have great faith, like this lady. Okay. The second question I want to answer. As, as we talk about faith as sort of like the bedrock to this, to this story, is how important is it that what, how important is it what you put your faith in? How important is it what your conviction is that something is actually true? Lots of people seem to think 
that what's important is that you have faith, that you have this conviction that moves you to action. But what you put your faith in is really immaterial, doesn't really matter. God's just looking for you to have faith in faith, if you would. They seem to think that that's all that matters. God doesn't care what your faith is in, doesn't care what the object of your faith is, just that you have faith. And so therefore, if your faith is in the God of Islam, if your faith is in the gods of the Hindus, or if your faith is in Jesus as God, what matters is that you have conviction that moves you to act. And I want to say that I very, very, very much disagree with that assertion. And I want you to, too. What we put our faith in is paramount. What we put our faith in is just as important as the fact that we must have faith to please the Lord. If what our conviction rests upon is faulty or flawed, we will be destroyed. Now, here's a simple illustration from, from this past week in my life, right? I, uh, and I bought a car. And I, I'm at the salesperson, and I want a tow package. I'm told the car has a tow package, but I forgot to look. And, uh, and so I'm signing the papers to buy the car. And I said, oh, does it have a tow package? Yes, it does. Here's the paperwork. It has a tow package. I said, okay. Well, you probably know it did not have a tow package. It didn't matter how much faith I put in the salesperson, right? It didn't matter how much faith I put in his word. I believed his word with that empirical evidence, right? I had faith. It moved me to sign for the car, but it wasn't true. So my faith didn't make that true. Here's a more serious and a better illustration. This comes from the navigators. I mean, this, is, this illustration is 40 or 50 years old. Let's pretend there's a frozen pond, and I think the ice is two inches thick. And so I have lots of faith that it's going to hold me up. So I run down to the pond, and I just run out on the pond. Well, if the pond's ice is not two inches thick, but only a half an inch thick, I'm not going to get very far and I'm going to fall in. It's not going to matter that I had all the faith in the world to run down the hill and run on the ice. If the ice is not thick, it will not hold me up. Vice versa, if I am scared to death to go out on the ice because I think it won't hold me up, but it really is two inches thick, and I inch my way, I should use another word, and I slowly make my way out on the ice, the ice is, it doesn't matter that I have a little faith that it's going to hold me up. It's the ice that holds me up. If, if you and I put our faith in Jesus and he did not rise from the dead, then, then our faith, and, and, there, there is, and he did not rise from the dead, there is no promise of resurrection. It isn't true. It doesn't matter how strongly you believe it. And let me take that principle and apply it to something else. Just because we believe something doesn't make it true. All right? Just because I believe something doesn't make it true. It doesn't matter how strongly we believe something. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, when you die, you perish. You will not live. You know, you will not live again. Without faith, you can't please God. But if what we put our hope in, if what we rest our convictions on is not true, then we of all men and women are to most to be pitied. And those are Paul's words, not mine. If what we believe isn't, isn't true. So let's go back to the question at hand. What is great faith? Why did Jesus say that this woman in our story had great faith? Now, he never tells us. He never really defines for us. This is what I mean when I said the Roman centurion had great faith. This is what I mean when I said this woman has great faith. So these are my suggestions as to what he meant. This is hopefully my encouragement uh, 
to what he meant by, by great faith. So let's begin. We're at verse 24 in our study of Mark. We're at chapter 7, verse 24. He got up, that is Jesus, got up and departed from there to the region of Tyre. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, but he could not escape. Now, if you remember, you could not escape notice. You, you may remember that Jesus has tried to go on retreat with his disciples, but they were waiting for him and that didn't happen. And then we have the episode on the, on the, uh, on the Sea of Galilee at night. And then he gets to uh, Gennesaret, I think it was, on the uh, western side of the Sea of Galilee. And uh, he, he ministers there once he gets there. And now we read that he heads north to Tyre, which would be present-day Syria. He's out of Israel. He's moved north. And it seems to me that his goal is to retreat. He's heading north to get away from his popularity. They find an Airbnb, and it says he tries to get in without notice, right? But he's not successful. The fame of Jesus has already, it's already reached Tyre. It's already reached the northern regions, northern, north, of, north of Israel, they recognize him. Verse 25. Instead, immediately after hearing about him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit came and fell at his feet. Now in that verse, I think we find what great faith is, first of all. I think great faith, great faith is great when it's directed towards Jesus. Remember, people can put their faith in all sorts of things. They can put their faith in many people. Faith is the conviction that moves, uh, is a conviction that something is true, moves us to action. Remember James, he said, you show me your faith without your works. I'm going to show you my faith by my works. People have faith that moves them to action, moves them to work. They have faith in people. They have faith in politicians. Seems like to me these days, that's where most of us as Americans are putting our faith in politicians, doctors, bosses. We put our faith in science. We put our faith in philosophy. But great faith is that which is placed in the person of Jesus. How this woman heard about Jesus, I I don't know. But she had heard of him. And and she had believed what she had heard. She believed the stories. She believed that he could deliver her daughter. She believed that Jesus would deliver her daughter and that he would be enough. What happened to her, I think, is the Romans 1017 principle. You remember this? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. One translation says, so faith comes from what is heard and what is heard comes from the message about Messiah. She had evidently heard the message about Jesus from person after person. And I'm speculating here, but maybe she, maybe she heard the stories of his healing power, how he healed the blind, the crippled. Maybe she heard a story about how he had cast out demons out of people. Maybe others told her about the kingdom of God that he talked about in repenting. Others may have told her about him being the Messiah that Jesus was looking for. Whatever she had been told, she had believed it. And little by little, her faith kept growing until it was great faith because it was great faith in Jesus. She was about to have an opportunity to express that great faith in Jesus. And she took it. She came to Jesus. Last week, I I heard something that that profoundly impacted me, believe it or not. It was at that class I'm taking, a perspectives class. 
And, uh, and, and this, was, this was what I heard. We will not draw people to Jesus by telling them all the wrong they do, but rather by painting a picture of Jesus that is beautiful and compelling. I got to tell you that, you know, not that I do the other, not that I, you know, try to get people to follow Jesus by telling them all the wrong they do. I, I don't, I don't do that. But this, this statement just impacted me that the way we get people to follow Jesus is we paint the picture of how beautiful he is and how compelling he is. And I mean, that stuck with me. So when we're doing our drive test in that car and, uh, and the sales guys in the back, you know, I just, that's what I tried to do. I tried to paint a picture for him of how wonderful Jesus is. And some of the things I said to him was, that things like, you know, Jesus makes me a better man, makes you a better man. He makes you, he's got two little daughters. He makes you a better dad. He makes you kinder and gentler and filled with grace and righteousness. He makes you a better person. And I tried to paint a picture. I don't know how well I did, but I tried to paint a picture that this guy would leave our presence and he would, and he would then want to go find out more about Jesus himself. That was my goal. Like I said, how well I did it, I don't know. But this woman, as she heard the stories about Jesus, her faith in Jesus just grew till it was great. And she came to him. Paul says that it's the love of Jesus that compels us. And I wonder, Jesus said, when I'm lifted up on the cross, I'll draw all men to myself. When I lift it up on the cross, I'll draw all men to myself. What do you mean? Did he just mean that somehow after, after his death and resurrection that there'll be something in the air that draws all men? I mean, it could be. I mean, but it could be that he was saying, you know, when you talk about my love for mankind and, and God becoming one of us and giving his life for us, when you lift me up like that, it's going to draw all people to me because they're going to say, what an awesome, what an awesome God Jesus is. The love and compassion and power of Jesus led this woman to put her faith in him. What about you this morning? Has the beauty and love of Jesus led you to put your faith in Jesus, to come and and to have great faith in him? Are you seeking after him? Great faith is faith that's resting and, and relying upon Jesus, even though we don't have the empirical evidence of being able to put our hands in his side or the wounds in his hands or see him with our eyes. Verse 26, the woman was a Gentile, a Syphonician by birth, and she was asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And here's, here's my second thought about great faith. Faith is great when it believes against the natural barriers, against the things that maybe go on inside of us. If she looked at this rationally, uh, Jesus would not have cared for her. There would have been barriers between her and Jesus that would have kept her from coming to Jesus and putting her faith in him. She was a woman. Jesus was a man. Why would he care about her? Maybe she heard stories about the the, the story you read, Tim, that we talked about not too long ago from Mark's gospel about the woman with the bleeding disorder and how he cared about her. Remember that? Maybe the story of, of her 
made it to this woman. Maybe, maybe it was the story of Mary, the woman that eight demons had been cast out of, that was one of Jesus' entourage. Maybe she heard about that. She was a Gentile and Jesus was a Jew. Why would he care about her? Maybe she heard things like Jesus said, it's not the outside that what touches you on the outside that's going to make you unclean. It's what comes out of you that makes you unclean. Maybe she heard, hey man, Jesus really cares for Gentiles. But she would have had these barriers on the inside. She would have had these things which would have been that Satan would have been whispering in her ear, using her feelings to say, he doesn't care for you, you don't need to go. You may have barriers like that that keep you from putting your faith in Jesus and trusting him fully. And those barriers may not be the same as hers. Maybe you're thinking you're so insignificant, how would God care about you? That you're just a little nobody, you're just a little whatever. Why would God care about you? Well, it's the same thing. Great faith pushes past those things. And great faith knows that God really does love you. And he cares about you. The psalmist says that he made us a little lower than the angels. Okay? I assure you, God knows about you. And he cares for you. Maybe, maybe it could be a barrier. You're thinking, man, I have sinned so bad. I have messed up so bad. God can't forgive me. God can't care for me. God can't fix me. God can't forgive me of my sins or save me. God can't do any of that. I'm telling you, Jesus died and there's not a sin that he won't cleanse. If you'll come to him, not a sin he won't, won't cleanse. I once told a dying friend, he was scared. And he, this is what he said to me. He said, Jimmy, you don't know what I've done. And I didn't know what he had done. But I, I could look him in the eye and I could say to him, it doesn't matter what you've done. Jesus died for you. And if you are trusting in him, he has and is willing to forgive you all your sins. So great faith is faith that pushes past these internal barriers that, that rise up in us at times, thinking that maybe we're not worthy or, you know, we've, we've, we've blown it too bad. God can't really forgive me. None of that's true. 27, he said to her, let the children be fed first, because it isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she replied to him, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. This brings me to my third, my third thought about what great faith is. Great faith, or faith that is great, is when it perseveres against the test. And she's able to believe that Jesus would care for her and her daughter, even though she's a woman and even though she's a Gentile. I mean, these natural barriers, she, she's able to, to press past those. But um, what if there's a test of actually resistance to her faith and her exercise of faith? What if there's a pushback on her? And I, I call it a test because I think, this is Jimmy's speculation, it doesn't say this, but I think Jesus is testing her. I think he's testing her because he knows her. I think the Spirit has told him of this encounter to come. And, and this is a test for her, and it's a test for everybody who's going to witness the test, okay? It's a test for everyone. And, and it's the test of perseverance. It's the test of perseverance. And um, 
It begins right when she gets there. She's crying out to Jesus, evidently not able to get to him. In Matthew's gospel, we read that Jesus ignored her. So, I mean, that's kind of hard, isn't it? I mean, to think of Jesus ignoring her. But Jesus is, evidently they're in a courtyard. I'm speculating here. And she can see them and she is hollering at them. And Jesus is ignoring her. And the disciples are so bothered by it. Matthew tells us that they said to Jesus, make her go away. Make her go away. Her first test of perseverance is pressing on past Jesus and his disciples and their passive responses to her need. Finally, Jesus speaks up. I don't normally do this, but I needed to today. Matthew's gospel gives us a few more details. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus speaks up to her and he says to her, he said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I was sent to to Israel, Jesus says to her. She evidently gets invited in because she falls at his feet. And this is where Mark picks the story up. She falls at his feet and she begs him for mercy to help her, her help her daughter, most likely by the, by the text, a very young girl. To, to her plea, Jesus responds with a statement that at first glance, it's hard, isn't it? It seems like it's rude or uncaring. Jesus says, let the children be fed first. He just got through telling her, I've come to Israel, to the, to the people of Israel. Because it isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, I don't think that Jesus is being uncaring or rude. I think he's testing the woman's faith. I think he's doing this on purpose. And here is her second test. And it's a test of, her second test of perseverance is pressing past the pushback that even Jesus is giving her. He's not being passive. He's pushing back against her faith. And will she give up and go home? Will she quit or persevere? You know, by, by the way, let me just comment on this. In, in the Greek language, there's two words for dog. One of them is a mangy, uh, terrible dog, the street dog. It was an insult. The Jews used it. They called the Gentiles dogs. Uh, there's another word for dog. It was little dog. It referred to household dogs or pets. And that's the word that Jesus uses. Not that it's still, still, it's still a sting. It still seems to be a stingy statement, doesn't it? You know, But he's not using that derogatory word. He's basically saying to her, it's not right to give the food to the children, to the pets. And, um, but she's undaunted by Jesus' pushback. Undeterred, she answers him from her. And this is why she has great faith. Even if that is true, she says, even the pets get the scraps. That's her answer to Jesus. Give me some scraps is what she's saying. And I think this is the heart of great faith. This is at the core of this message. Even when your faith, your convictions are passively or actively resisted, challenged or buffeted, trust in Jesus. Even when, they're, even when you're getting something that resists your faith, pushing against your faith, you press through that and persevere in faith. What you know, what you've learned, what you believe about Jesus, hold fast to it and persevere in it, regardless of how much you're feeling pushed against. When God tells you something in his word, trust him. 
When he tells you, gives you a sure word, the Bible calls it, I think the word is rhema. But he, he, when he gives you a word to your heart, he speaks to you something. And you, and you know God has told me this. Hold fast to that in faith. Don't lose heart. Believe him. Take him at his word. When, when Thomas doubted, Jesus said, blessed will be those who don't see, don't have the empirical evidence. But they believe, they have faith, and, and I think he would say, and they persevere in that faith. Your faith will be tested. Every one of you, your faith in Jesus will be tested. And, and, and not so much your faith, of, well, maybe your faith, you might go to college, and your faith in the resurrection of Jesus, the death and resurrection of Jesus, that may be challenged. Let me tell you now, there's answers. There's an, we have evidence, we have evidence that substantiates our faith in Jesus. We don't have empirical evidence, but we have evidence. It's not like we believe things contrary to evidence, despite what people may tell you if, you, uh, from, if you're in college and you go to, a, you may hear otherwise than what you've heard here from this desk, right? But, uh, but I want to talk about when your faith is challenged differently. Because see, your faith is that Jesus loves you, right? Nod your head. Isn't your faith that God loves you? That God really cares about you? That God sent Jesus to die for you so that his life could be substituted for yours? So his righteous life could substitute for your failed sinful life? So that his resurrection could be given to you so you could rise one day? You believe that, don't you? And you believe that God really, really loves you and cares for you. Well, let me tell you something. That's probably going to be tested at some point. It's going to be pushed against. And, and, and um, great faith perseveres through that. I hope it's okay to, to use him and his family. I mean, I, 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 I pray for him. I think about him often. I've never even met the man. But I think of Russell Hamilton and his wife. And I've heard her name, but I can't call it. I don't remember it. But I think about Russell Hamilton a lot. Because he's a man of faith who loves God. And yet his daughter, Tori died of cancer. His daughter, Rachel, has cancer and she's fighting it now. He has colon cancer. And yet his conviction and his faith is that God loves me. God's not going to desert me. God's going to walk with me. God's going to keep me. You know, he's got to persevere against things that are pushing back against his faith that God loves him or that God cares about him. Great faith is the faith that when, when there is pressure against your faith, you keep on and you don't, you don't abandon your faith. You don't reject your faith. You press on through your faith. I wonder, has your faith been tested? Is your, te- is your faith being tested at this moment? I pray that when the test comes, you will have Great faith. You will press on in faith. Verse 29. And then he told her, because of this reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. Mark left it out. He said to her, woman, your faith is great. Your faith is great. You may go. The demon has left your daughter. And when she went back to home, back home to her home, she found her child lying in the bed and the demon was gone. Great faith is rewarded. 
Our great faith will be reward. God rewards our faith. Hebrews eleven six. He is a rewarder of those who put their faith in him and seek him. He is a rewarder. Her faith was rewarded. Your faith will be rewarded too. And you say, well, what will be the rewards? I mean, well, if God has spoken a word to your heart, you will be rewarded by seeing God answer whatever it is that he's promised you, okay? If he's indeed promised it to you, he will, he will do it and you will see it. But, uh, but this is a promise to all of us. Your faith will be rewarded. Mr. Hamilton, Brother Hamilton's faith and his wife's faith and their family's faith will be rewarded at the return of Jesus with the resurrection from the dead of his family. We'll be raised to life and you shall be raised to dwell face to face with your creator forever. You will be loved by him forever. You will enjoy him and one another forever in a paradise without sin. So you will be rewarded for your faith. Great faith is rewarded. Actually, actually mustard seed faith is rewarded. One day, on the day, excuse me, on the day that Jesus died to the thief on the cross, Jesus said, you will be with me in paradise. Paul said in chapter 2, verse 8 of 2 Timothy, I think it is, there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. Your faith will be rewarded. So, beloved, have great faith. Have great faith. Put your faith in Jesus. Don't let any barriers, internal words from the enemy keep you from putting your faith in Jesus and trusting him fully. And don't let, don't let those things that actively resist your faith, don't let them derail your faith. Press on through them, your faith in Jesus. This brings us to the last section of this chapter. Verse 31. After leaving the region of Tyre, he went by way of Sidon to the Sea of Galilee through the region of Decapolis. They brought, him, <clears throat> they brought to him a deaf man who had difficulty speaking and begged Jesus to lay his hand on him. So he took him away from the crowd in private and after putting his fingers in the man's ears and spitting, he touched his tongue. Looking up to heaven, he sighed deeply and he said, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And immediately his ears were opened and his tongue was loosed and he began to speak clearly. And he ordered them to tell no one But the more he ordered them, the more they proclaimed it. Now, Mark's the only one to record this story. It's not found in any of the other Gospels. It's kind of hard to, if you can imagine, I'm going to paint a map here, uh, an invisible map. But uh, here's the Mediterranean Sea, and here is Israel, and here's the Sea of Galilee. Jesus has gone north to Tyre, but now he goes even further north, like 30 miles north of Tyre to Sidon. You know, why, why does he do that? Why does he travel into that Gentile territory? In fact, after he leaves Sidon, he'll travel over here to the ten city, the Gentile area of ten cities, which is on the uh, east coast of, uh, of the Sea of Galilee. He, he'll travel over there. Why did he do that? Some have suggested he's on a Gentile mission. I, I don't believe that he is. He just got through telling the the Syrophoenician woman, he's got to be telling her, I'm, I'm, I'm not here for the Gentiles. I've come for the Jews. I don't believe that Jesus is on a Gentile mission. So what is he, why does he go north? I think he goes north because he's still trying to get away. He's still trying to find a place where he and his disciples can spend time. That's, that's my speculation. But on this trip, 
As he's traveling, I'm assuming back down now to Israel. On this trip, um, he encounters, they bring him a deaf man who can't speak very well. Uh, Deaf people learn to speak, but when they do, it's never very good. Um, Helen Keller, if you uh, remember who Helen Keller was, of course, she was blind, deaf, and, and was she mute? mute? No, she wasn't. But she couldn't speak. She couldn't hear. And she couldn't see. When she didn't learn to speak, if, if she learned to speak by, by watching, well, not by last, by feeling people's lips. I think uh, people who are deaf can look at lips and their family can help them. So I, I think that this guy had learned to speak a little bit, even though he couldn't hear, but it sounded terrible. This is my speculation of what it means when it says his speech wasn't very good, right? He wasn't very clear. He may have been a Gentile, may have been a Jew, we don't know. But what's absolutely clear is that Jesus does not want to gather a crowd. He doesn't want this to be another episode that, that draws a crowd. So he takes the man off by himself alone. Why? Because he's not there in front of everybody. He takes his fingers and he sticks them in the man's ears. He takes some spit and he puts it on the man's tongue. Why does he put fingers in the ears and spit on the tongue? Obviously, he didn't need to do that. Remember, Jesus told the uh, the Romans, said, hey, all you got to do is say the word. And and Jesus said, man, what great faith. So he doesn't need to do that. So why, why does he do that? I mean, I'm speculating here. I, I think it has to do with compassion for the dead man. I mean, for the, for the deaf man, sorry. For the deaf man, I think it's compassion for him. I remember reading a long time ago about in Sweden, a woman was caught underneath one of those, uh, what do you call, street cars. She was running to catch it. She fell underneath it. They had to get a crane. I'm still alive, but they had to get a crane to get it off of her. And while she's waiting, she's trapped underneath the car. People are gathering. One guy comes running through the crowd, crawls underneath the streetcar, and holds the woman's hand the whole time she's under there until they get her out. Later on, after they got her out, she said, I never thought an outstretched hand could mean so much. I think, I think Jesus touched people that other people probably wouldn't touch them. And he touched them to say, I care about you. He looks up to heaven and he expresses his dependence. I mean, that's a, I think he's looking to heaven and expressing his dependence on God. And then he sighs. Why does he sigh? We don't know. I'm going to make a suggestion. Maybe it's just a a sigh. This sigh is like a a heart sorrow towards the sickness and the suffering that, uh, that the world is facing, that people face. You know, God is not way off, everyone. If you're suffering, and, and you know, some of you are suffering. Some of you are suffering. And uh, I just need to remind you, God is not far off. God's not a million miles away. God is with you. He's with us. And I think Jesus' sigh is just telling us God's, God's heart sorrows with ours. That, that's Jimmy's speculation of why Jesus sighed at this point. He cares about this man, and he cares about you. Then he prays, be open, and the man could hear, and his tongue was loosed, and immediately he began to speak. Now, did he have perfect diction, or did now that he have his hearing, he's able to improve his speech, you know, and his speech is going to get better? Uh, You know, I have a thought there, but, you know, it doesn't really matter. Jesus heals the man, and he can hear, and he begins to speak better. But as many times before, Jesus tells us, he tells the man, he says, hey, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. But the more he tells them, 
the more they tell. So is this a, I got to tell somebody, got to tell somebody moment, or is this a rebellious moment? Man, I'm going to tell people even though you tell me not to. It's not the rebellion. It's the, I got to tell somebody, I got to tell somebody what Jesus did for me. Again, uh, the point is Jesus is trying not to grow the crowd. He's try- Jesus doesn't want a crowd following him just for the miraculous. He wants an opportunity to disciple his disciples. He wants an opportunity to, uh, to be more impactful than just be the miracle worker. Verse 37, they were extremely astonished and said, he has done everything well. He makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. The people are astonished. They're amazed. Jesus does everything well because he makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. It's hard not to miss the connection to Isaiah 35. Listen as I read. This is a prophetic uh, passage from Isaiah talking about the Messiah to come. Be strong and do not fear. Your God will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, the ears of the deaf be unstopped. Then will the lame leap like, like a deer and the moot tongue shout for joy. Those are prophetic verses about Jesus or about the Messiah. And I think Jesus, as he heals this man, as he does so often, he's making the point, I am the Messiah. Even though he doesn't want people to tell people that, he makes that point to everyone that he speaks to. And they say, Jesus is the Messiah who does all things well. He is worthy of great faith. You too can be a person of great faith. Put your faith in Jesus. Believe him against the natural barriers. And then believe him against the test that are going to come your way. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check us out on YouTube and Facebook to get to know us and see what God is doing here in Surrey. Be blessed.